lot of you know uh, the story about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, or if you're my age and a little bit older, then you might remember the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It was written by a British author named Roald Dahl. And I believe what he says or the point he makes in this short story has a lot to do with what we have heard today from our reading with Ecclesiastes and what we're going to hear over the sermon series on Ecclesiastes. Um, it's this idea that I, I feel like I've woven into my sermons, especially in the church building over the last few months, this idea that the world is broken or not quite right. I've said it over and over again. Do we know that there's something wrong? That the way this world is today, death, cancer, divorce, all of those things are a result of the fall. That sin has entered into this world, and so the world is not the way God intended it. And, and Paul says to us in Romans, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. In other words, don't get along with this world. Don't participate in this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, hold on to that word, and acceptable and perfect. Paul's pointing to the problem that we all have of being conformed to this world. We think this is the way it's supposed to be, and we try to get along. Well, this short story by Dahl makes an excellent point about the world. I want to read it to you. I tried to memorize it. It's got a few nuances that just I couldn't get right, so I'm going to read it to you. It's not terribly long. I want to make a couple points about Ecclesiastes, uh, the reading today, Life Under the Sun, and then I want to talk about Life Above the Sun. The name of the story is The Upside-Down Mice. The Upside-Down Mice. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there lived an old man of 87 whose name was Laban. Laban discovered one morning that he had mice in his house, and at first that didn't bother him greatly. But the mice multiplied, and they kept right on multiplying until they became a problem that he could stand no longer. This is too much, he said to himself. This really is going a bit too far. So he hobbled out of the house, went down the road to a store where he bought himself some mouse traps, a piece of cheese, and some glue. When he got home, he put the glue on the underneath of the mousetrap and stuck it to the ceiling. Then he baited the mousetraps with pieces of cheese and set them to go off. That night, when the mice came out of their holes and saw the mousetraps on the ceiling, they thought it was a tremendous joke. They walked around on the floor nudging each other and pointing up with their paws, roaring in laughter. After all, it was pretty silly mousetraps on the ceiling. When he came down the next morning, he saw there were no mice caught in the traps, but he smiled and said nothing. He took his chair, put glue on the bottom of its legs, and stuck it upside down on the ceiling near the mouse traps. Likewise, the table, the television, the lamp, he took everything on the floor and glued it to the ceiling. He even put a little piece of carpet up there. The next night, when the mice came out of their holes, they were still joking and laughing about what they had seen the night before, but now... When they looked up at the ceiling, they stopped laughing very suddenly. Good gracious me, cried one. Look up there, there's the floor. Heavens above, shouted another. We must be standing on the ceiling. I'm beginning to feel a little giddy, said one. All the blood's going to my head, said another. This is terrible, a senior mouse said. This is really terrible. We must do something about it at once. I shall faint if I have to stand on my head any longer, shouted a young mouse. Me too, I can't stand it. Save us. Somebody do something quick. I know what we'll do, said a wise senior mouse. We'll stand on our heads. 
then anyway, we'll be the right way up. Obediently and one by one, they all stood on their heads. And after a long time, one by one, they fainted from the rush of blood to their brains. When Laban came down the next morning, the floor was littered with fainted mice. And he quickly gathered them up and popped them out into the woods. That should make you laugh a little bit. But I'm wondering if we see ourselves as mice. Do we recognize that the furniture has been glued to the ceiling? Are we aware that something's wrong? Are we? Slowly over time, what happens to each one of us is that we begin to conform to the patterns and behavior and the direction the world is going. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes said. Um, You may have remembered in a previous sermon that I mentioned the Bible has a meta-narrative, and it goes like this. Creation, fall. Redemption, new creation. Well, this book, Ecclesiastes, was written during the fall period. Redemption hasn't occurred like it has now. We're living in the in-between time. But it sure looks very similar, doesn't it? We're all going to get up tomorrow. We're all going to go back to our jobs. Some of us are going to work in our homes. And we're all going to go right back to what we did starting last week. And in these two passages this morning in Ecclesiastes, we hear over and over again about the reasons for the futility of labor under the sun. The reasons for the futility of labor under the sun. One commentary I read put it this way. actually boiled down the reasons work under the sun is futile this way. First of all, labor under the sun is devoid of any real gain. We heard that in the, in the uh, reading this morning. What I gain could be passed on to my children, but we've all heard it. You can't take it to heaven with you. So there is no real gain. What I do and then what the next person does and what the next person does all ends when we die. Also, under the sun, it's without rest. How many of us lay down at night and can't go to sleep? We can't turn our minds off. No matter what we do, we go over and over those things that we did and those things that we didn't do. And most often in this life and in in the times of Ecclesiastes, what we do, how we work, is motivated by envy. By envy. I'll point that out in just a second. Because the word labor or toil in the Hebrew, yamal, has at its root the connotation of badness or evil. And it gets that definition from way back in Genesis. Way back in Genesis. You don't have to turn there. But I just want to, rem- I want you to, re- I want to remind you of this. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam and Eve the Garden of Eden, and this is what it says, to work it and to take care of it. So labor is a God-sanctioned activity. God's given Adam and Eve the Garden to take care of. But later in chapter 3, we know what happens. As God addresses the serpent, the woman, the man, and explains that because of their disobedience, the ground will now be cursed, and that in order to survive from that moment on, they will do so by the sweat of their brow. If you'd have been here at 8, you'd have seen me sweating. It was so hot in here. Anyway, by the sweat of their brow. God's saying, in other words, I'm still providing for you, but now your life comes with a price. You are now mortal. Let's look at um, chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes, verse 23 on page 472. Turn there with me, please. It's actually 473 in your books. Now your mortality comes with a price. It says in verse 23, All his days or her days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. 
And I propose that it's this fear of our mortality that drives us to work, that drives us to toil. We went from being completely provided for in chapter 2 of Genesis and in relationship with the Creator in one moment to being responsible for our lives, our food, our security, everything. Those things that cause us basic anxiety. And the thinking goes something like this. We have to do what we have to do in order to survive since it all depends on us or me. We used to say in business, unfortunately, well, that's just business. That's the way things go out here under the sun as we work. And Ecclesiastes would echo that. Under the sun, that's what we have to do to survive. But I wonder if you've ever thought about anxiety or your anxiety. You know, there are two types of anxiety. There's basic anxiety. That's the anxiety that's connected with our survival. Basic anxiety, where we're going to eat, where we're going to sleep. And then there's neurotic anxiety. It sounds kind of funny. Neurotic anxiety. It's the anxiety that comes with everything else. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people come back from Haiti or Honduras or Africa on a mission trip and say something like this. I was so amazed. Those people are so poor, but they seem so joyful. That's because all they have is basic anxiety. We Westerners, you see, get the bonus. We have basic and neurotic anxiety. Neurotic anxiety comes by looking at the world and by the people around us and thinking to ourselves, well, I just don't measure up. I'm not as good a businessman as that guy. I'm not as good a mother. I'm not as good a doctor, a father, you name it. Those kinds of words, that type of thinking, is what conjures up neurotic anxiety in us. And what we do is we get right back up Monday morning and we go back out and rededicate ourselves to this upside-down world because we don't believe we measure up. Look at verse 4 in chapter 4, page 474. So this is an age-old problem, this neurotic anxiety. Verse 4 says on page 474, And I saw that all labor and all achievement sprang from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So the author's standing there saying something like the Alpha poster, I think. What on earth am I doing here? What is the point of this life? If after working and toiling, we're faced with the same problem. Nothing we do, nothing we build, nothing we create provides an answer to that question or solves our ultimate dilemma. So does the author think that life under the sun is, or life at all is meaningless, completely meaningless? No. He does ultimately come to understand that life has meaning, and we heard it last week when Tyler read the end of Ecclesiastes. I'll read it to you again. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And also notice one other thing today on page 473, verse 24, where he says we can find pleasure in the momentary benefits that work brings, but it's under one condition. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? The psalmist says it this way. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sheep. So God is the only one who can provide meaning and true lasting enjoyment in labor. And labor done in cooperation with God, like we heard in chapter 2, is good. And here's Genesis again. God created the earth. God created the sky. God created the creatures of the earth and saw that they were what? Good. There is only one who is good, Jesus says in Matthew 19. Remember that story? A young man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter, if, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And of course, we know the rest of the story. He says, Which one? Jesus tells him. He says, I've done that. And Jesus tells him to sell everything that he has. Sell everything that he has. And the man goes away sorrowful. It's a story about keeping the law and doing what is right, but it ends up being Jesus talking to his disciples about how difficult it is for rich people, people with lots of stuff, to get into heaven. People who've accumulated and worked hard to get things. But Jesus ends the story with these words of hope, verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 19. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? They realized when they heard this story, who? I mean, if you have one thing or a million things, Jesus, if you have anything in your life, are you telling us we can't be saved? But Jesus looks at them and says, With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So this text today in Ecclesiastes, I believe, can be boiled down to the age-old debate between faith a heart issue, and reason, a head issue. Mike Lumpkin said Wednesday in our staff meeting as we were going over this in our Bible study, he was quoting someone, faith is not understanding, rather faith is trust. So it's faith that requires we believe in Jesus and who he says he is, that we accept his testimony and receive it not in our heads but in our hearts. Paul explains it beautifully this way when he writes to the Corinthians. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He goes on to say, and with God, your labor has meaning. Christ inside of us, opening our hearts and minds, is the beginning of wisdom, which we've heard from Ecclesiastes and is also Job. Or, more simply put for our 21st century minds, maybe something like this. There is a God, and we are not He. There is a God, and it is not us. You see, Jesus came to pull back this veil. Jesus came to tell us, look, the furniture's glued to the ceiling. There's something wrong. Don't orient yourself to the furniture glued to the ceiling. That's the wisdom I think all 66 books in this Bible teach us. That there is a God, and it is not us. So I want to end today by suggesting one thing. That if we accept that there is a God, and it's not us, and that he sent his son Jesus for us, we need to begin to try to accept life as God's sovereignty gives it. Take ourselves out of the position of handling everything, and allow God's sovereignty to take over. 
rather than trying to control it by our own efforts. My prayer would be that daily we'd ask Jesus to lift this veil from our eyes so that we could see the world the way it really is. We could see the world above the sun as we live here below it. Amen.